continue our worship now through the preaching of God's word. We'd like to read um, really beginning at verse 13 once again down through verse 18, although this morning we'll look primarily at verses 17 and 18. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of Righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You may be seated. Thank you, Father, for your word. Your word is a treasure, a gift to us. We're thankful that you have given it to us. We're thankful that we could spend these next few moments together worshiping you before your word. And we pray that you would be pleased by how we proclaim and how we hear and receive your word. We would pray that your spirit would be at work now in conjunction with your word, that we would be those who do not merely hear, but who do your word. And so, Father, transform us through our time together. Meet with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the current unit that we're in began in verse 1 of chapter 3. It'll take us all the way over to verse 12 of chapter 4. And uh, the bookends, uh, the starting point and the ending point of this unit is talking about the use of the tongue, what we say to each other, how we speak to each other. And, and yet now the subunit that we're in uh, has now moved things from the realm of our tongues and our speech to the realm of our hearts, in particular, what verses 13 through 18 uh, pertain to is they sort out the absolute crucial need for wisdom to reside in our hearts. We'll never know how to speak to each other, what to say to each other, uh, unless there is wisdom percolating around in our hearts, unless our hearts are permeated with wisdom. Verse 13, he begins by asking a question. Anybody wise among us? He doesn't ask for a verbal answer. He directs us to not say whether or not we have wisdom, but to just show whether or not we have wisdom. And then in verses 14, 15, and 16 that we considered last week, uh, he um, deals with the lack of wisdom or false wisdom, if you would. Wisdom that's not from above, but wisdom that's from below. 
In so doing, he kind of is doing a thing that uh, Solomon would do in the book of Proverbs. He's contrasting wisdom with folly. So verses 14, 15, and 16 really uh, describe a life of folly. Now this morning in verses 17 and 18, he orients us to true wisdom. Or as he says in the beginning of verse, verse 17, but wisdom from above. Two things I want to talk about or highlight concerning this wisdom from above. And verse 17 is the first thing. That it, it, it identifies some, if you would, internal features, some inner qualities or characteristics uh, of wisdom. And then verse 18 directs us to think about uh, some external fruit of wisdom. Some, some external conditions that, that flow out of a heart of wisdom. First of all, verse 17. But wisdom that is from above uh, is first of all, since there's the, here's the lead quality, the lead trait of a life that consists of wisdom, a life that reflects it, that it has obtained wisdom. First of all, it's pure. James keeps hinting at an issue that is of utmost importance to him in this book. And this word pure here is another example of what he's been touching on and dealing with. When he talks about you and I needing to be pure as those who name the name of Christ, he's, he's not assuming that you and I will live morally perfect lives. But he is assuming that we who name the name of Christ will have a wholehearted moral devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's what he means here by the notion of pure, or the opposite of that. He's alluded to back in verse 8 of chapter 1 about being double-minded. Again, we, that's not talking about having genuine doubts or questions, but it's talking about being ambiguous as to where we morally and stand in our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll bring up... Um, this double-minded issue again in chapter 4, verse 8. So heads up, heads up alert. In fact, in fact, what's interesting is in chapter 4, verse 8, he links purity with double-mindedness, where he says in verse 8 of chapter 4, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, the quality that he's touching on here, which I think is the lead virtue or the lead quality of these internal features that reflect wisdom is, first of all, uh, that we are not double-minded in our devotion to the Lord, that we are wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. Without that sort of wholehearted devotion to the Lord, we will be people who come up short in the category of wisdom. We will come up short. We will lack the applied moral skill for living life. 
then outside of that first feature or quality or trait, whatever we want to tag these things are, there's seven or eight of them that he lists here in verse 17. Not that I know, I don't know how to count, but I think one of them is probably joined together. So it's probably seven qualities rather than eight. The first one is, is purity. And so now we got, now we got six more. After he lists purity, what does he say next? Then, and it seems like these three are lumped together. Then peaceable, uh, gentle, open to reason. Peaceable. Which, by the way, uh, you kind of get the feel when you read verses 17 and 18 that uh, there, there's something big here about peace as it pertains to uh, possessing wisdom. He'll mention this notion of peaceable here in verse 17. He'll mention peace twice in verse 18. So heads up, uh, this is an important feature of a life that consists of wisdom. Anyone wise and understanding among us? Well, that gets sorted out in so many ways in terms of how we're able to get along with people. It's first of all, peaceable, which literally I think he means there, what does he mean by peaceable? Someone who loves peace, a peace lover. Someone who loves getting along with people. Someone who doesn't love the drama of complex, hostile, uh, always in uproar kind of relationships. Someone who just loves normal, boring, mundane, peaceable life. A peace lover. Not, not necessarily peace at all costs, not peace in the sense of peace at the cost of truth, but, but even, when, even when the issue is truth and not simply your opinion, and, and honestly, that's what gets us in trouble with most people. We have an opinion about something, and we're not going to stop or let up until, until the other person throws up the wet, red, white flag and acquiesces to our opinion. And, 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 and and that's not, that's, not, that's not healthy. You don't demand that everybody dot their I's and cross their T's like you do in every area of life. Yet, when it's an issue of God's revealed word, then it's an issue of truth. Then we don't claim neutrality when it comes to truth. And yet, even then, people will disagree with us when we stand on the truth. But even then, we ought to be people who are characterized as peace-loving. We, we ought to know how to get along with somebody who doesn't see things exactly the way we do as, as the Word of God has directed us to reach convictions and conclusions. We don't have to be belligerent. We don't have to be hostile. Wisdom helps us to know how to be peaceable because wisdom helps us to know how to love peace. Secondly, equality here, coupled with, uh, joined with peaceable or peace-loving is uh, gentle. I think the imagery that he's painting here about a gentle person is someone who knows how to be considerate of others. Someone who um, 
rather than just considers their own rights and their own privileges, actually knows how to consider the interests and the rights of others, actually knows how to um, uh, ponder even how to put the interest and the rights of others above themselves. They're, they're gentle. They, they don't pull the power cord, cord card out. They, they don't use the muscle of lording over others. Uh, but whatever strength they do have, they, they curb that strength and are considerate toward others. Uh, th- someone as gentle is someone who is willing to, to yield to the interest of others. Someone who is gentle and considerate is someone who is patient toward others when they don't quite come up to the snuff of our level of personal excellence, (laughs) allegedly. In other words, someone who is gentle refrains from incendiary speech. Another quality, peace-loving, gentle, or considerate. Someone who is open to reason. Someone who is not quick to respond, but, but, but is quick to want to hear more. S- someone who is willing to hear things out. Someone who could be persuaded if the facts are presented, if the, if the case is made. In other words, not someone who's stubborn, closed off, narrow-minded, not willing to budge. Someone who is obstinate. Do you see the, the, how the, the internal qualities going on here that, that describe a life full of wisdom, a life that operates in wisdom is, is by saying peace-loving and gentle or considerate or, or open to reason. We're really describing someone who knows how to make it easy for others to get along with you. What, could we say that about us? by our demeanor, by our our verbiage, by our spouting off of our perspectives and opinions, by by our demand that people acquiesce to our viewpoint? Do we make it easy for people to get along with us? Or are we like a stubborn bull? In a sense, what he's describing here is just the opposite of what he described about a person with false wisdom, person of folly. When he says in verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. The opposite of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are qualities like peace-loving and gentle and open to reason. Now remember, connect the dots here. Say, um, is there anyone of us who are wise? In a sense, by his lead virtue, is there any of us here who are pure, who are fully, wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord? That's the way we achieve a kind of life that people could look at us and say, there's something percolating around in our hearts that's probably consist of virtues of peace-loving and gentleness and being open to 
to reason. Then he, then he lists what I think is one more. He lumps it together in two phrases, but he, but he qualifies it, I think, but by the way he qualifies it, he just says, full of, full of what? And he lists two things. Full of mercy and good fruits. I don't think he means two separate things there. I think, I think first of all, he, 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 he describes someone who is full of mercy. What is, what is mercy? Mercy is loving compassion toward others that is unearned and or undeserved. You know what? You're not, you're not always committed to making sure that people around you get what they got coming to you, to them. That you, that you actually look at people with some measure of compassion that they haven't earned on their own, that they don't even really deserve. But as a person who's received mercy that begins to permeate our perspective on life, we realize that we are people who have received the loving compassion of God, which is unearned and undeserved. And, and, and that begins to settle in our hearts, and, and that changes the way we look at others. And, and yet, just so that it doesn't leave it as a concept, a person who's full of mercy, he, he then knocks it down into an applied state where he says, full of mercy, giving rise to a life full of good fruits. The fruits then are looking for, strategizing for ways that we would actually do acts of mercy toward other people. Because I think, you know what? Probably most of us here this morning would like to think of ourselves as a merciful person. If we were to like show a hand, how many of you would like to be thought of as merciful? I think most of us, some of you probably don't value that one. That's okay. You're back up in verses 14, 15 through 16 right now. But, 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 uh, but others may actually say, I want to be, but, but, but James won't let us just leave this notion of mercy in an abstract conceptual way. If you're, if you're a true person of mercy, then there'll be fruit of mercy that flow out of that. So we like to think of ourselves as a person of mercy so we could look back and say, no, so the last seven days since we were here last, has there, has there been any actions or words or behaviors or commitments or behaviors that we've done that could uh, be described as, well, that's the fruit of mercy. Actually, I've treated someone mercifully in this way or that way, or I've spoken to them mercifully by saying this and not saying that. And then he lists two other items here to kind of wrap up these inner qualities, the inner features of, of wisdom. It's, it's a person who is Received wisdom from above is a person who knows how to be impartial and sincere. I'll take the sincere one first. Um, uh, I think he's kind of, in a sense, bringing it back around to pure. In other words, because I, I really do think that being the lead virtue, I think he wraps it back up with, with something related to that. In other words, it's someone who is earnestly, wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, and he's not a phony about that. He's not hypocritical. He, he doesn't merely know how to look the part of someone who is earnest in his devotion to the Lord. He's someone who really does want to be earnest in his or her devotion to the Lord. And yet, having said that, then now we come to the second to the last one, impartial. I think of impartial 
think as James is fleshing it out here, um, first of all, notions of consistency or unwaveringness come to play. Someone who's not prone to make distinctions about how they will treat certain people over and above other people. Someone who doesn't have a strong bent toward favoritism. Of course, our grandkids don't qualify for that. It's okay to be favorite, favorite with your grandkids. But, so that, that's okay. That's okay. But, the, but any other way, it's not okay. So. Someone who is consistent and unwavering in terms of how they apply standards of righteousness uh, 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 to any host of people or persons. James has already touched on partiality earlier in this book. He's revisiting that again, and, but what he's really adding is that the ability to be impartial, to be a kind of person who doesn't make distinctions on how they apply right or wrong, uh, is, is not rooted in the social, economic, the ethnic orientation, or what so have you of persons. It's a standard that we seek to consistently apply across the board Someone who is impartial is someone who possesses the wisdom to know how to be uh, consistent. So, where do we start? Any, any of you, any, is there any wise and understanding among you? Uh, well, if you, if you lift the hood and look under the hood, then you begin to see some internal features that are going to show themselves out in a, uh, in a life of wisdom. Let him show it by the conduct of his life, by the way he lives. In other words, and so these qualities that, that are percolating in our hearts, pure, peace-loving, gentle, open to reason, um, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. These are under the hood. And they begin to seep out. Now, be, before we look at the ways in which they seep out, which is verse 18, I just want to maybe pause for a second or chase a rabbit for a second and explore or perhaps even revisit how do we obtain these sort of internal qualities in our souls? How do we get us some purity and peaceability and gentleness, and open to reasonness, uh, and uh, a life full of mercy and good fruits, and impartiality and sincerity. How do we cultivate those things in our lives? Well, first of all, and maybe it obviously goes without saying, but verse 17 was prefaced by these things come from above. But wisdom that is from above consists in these internal Qualities. They, they come from above, as uh, James would say in chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes from above, uh, for, as, uh, from the Father of lights. In other words, God gifts his people these sort of qualities. They are unearned and undeserved in a sense. 
God mercifully dispenses qualities like this to his children. Yet, as sure as we would say, he, he gifts these qualities to his children, we, we could also, perhaps, in a way that feels like it's at tension with itself, but it, I think it's okay. We'll be all right. It's an it's a unearned gift, and yet the experience of these qualities are not without qualifications. What's the qualification? But he just keeps pounding on and throughout the book is you can't be double-minded and have the wisdom that comes from above. above. You can't be double-minded and, and operate out of a sense of purity and peaceableness and gentleness and um, uh, open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits and impartial and sincere. Or let me describe it this way. Think of Psalm 1. Many of you might remember how Psalm 1 begins. Blessed is the man who does not walk by the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, and does not sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. All right, allow me, just for the sake of illustration, to tweak that that, the, that opening of Psalm 1 for a second and show you how we might think about those couple of verses through a grid of double-mindedness. Well, I might just be describing the typical North American Christian here for a moment. We would read Psalm 1 opening something like this. So in other words, warning, alert, I'm changing Psalm 1 for a second, all right? So don't anyone memorize this version that I'm about to give to you, okay? If I find that you've memorized it, I'm coming after No, um, I'll be peaceable about it. We would phrase it something like that. Blessed is the man who does walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does stand in the way of sinners, and who does sit in the seat of scoffers, and his delight is in the law of the Lord. In other words, can we do both? Can we hang out uh, and be influenced by our culture and by the wicked and by the evil? Can, can evil perspectives and, uh, and opinions and ways of the world influence and shape our hearts? And we got us some delight in the law of the Lord as well. That would be double-mindedness. can't have two masters, Jesus would say. Either you're going to hate the one and love the other, or you're, or you're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. But you can't serve two masters. Little brother James is taking what Jesus says, and he's working it out and saying, you, you can't be double-minded. Just like big bro said, you can't be double-minded. You can't learn from this fallen culture, what morality and what worldview consists of, and think that you can then belly up to scriptures and glean a couple of choice nuggets of devotion from the Lord as well. There can't be, in that case, neutrality is in fact double-mindedness. 
So how do we acquire these qualities? How do we obtain wisdom? We, we, we cannot be double-minded. We, we have to decide who is Jesus, what has he done, what's the big deal with him, and why do I need to go all in with him? Who is this Jesus? He's the one who has taken on flesh, being the second person of the Godhead. He was fully God, and yet he did not retain all his rights and privileges as God, but, but set them aside and humbled himself and be, took on flesh and became a man and lived a perfect life of perfect obedience and righteousness, embodied a life of complete and full devotion to his Father in heaven, lived a life of complete and total wisdom, and yet this Jesus then went to the cross and suffered an agonizing death, suffering up under the very curse of our sin, the very wrath of God's judgment upon sin for us as a substitute. The, the magnitude of what Jesus did in his life and in his death validated and proven and accepted by his resurrection requires that we cannot have a slimmer version of Jesus. We can't have a Sunday Jesus. We have to have a Jesus that takes charge of our entire week. For Jesus to not be Lord of our lives in light of what he has done, for us to have a one foot in, one foot out devotion to the Lord in light of who he is and what he has done is to be double-minded and it is to always, it always necessitate that we will come up short in this critter called wisdom. We will never know what it's like to strive for purity. We will never know what it's like to be peace-loving. We will never really know what it's like to be gentle. We will never really know what it's like to be open to reason. We will never really know what it's like to be full of mercy and good fruits. We will never know what it's like to be impartial and to be sincere. But when we turn to Jesus and trust only in him, when we acknowledge that it is his right to rule over us, and from this point on, our life is to consist of a constant battle in which we deny ourselves, we take up our cross daily, and we follow Jesus. And when we're walking in that direction, then we will cultivate and receive the gift of wisdom in our lives. Now quickly, let me look at verse 18 for a second. And look at this external fruit of wisdom. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness. Let me tell you what I, what I think he's saying there. I think he, when he says righteousness, he's dipping back to these internal qualities that he's just mentioned. In other words, if we have a life that consists of that sort of qualities or traits of righteousness that we're pure, we're peaceable, we are gentle, we are open to reason, we are full of mercy and good fruits, we are impartial and sincere. In other words, we operate with, with a sense of applied righteousness. And you know what? If, we, if you and I live with those sort of qualities, virtues of righteousness, then we will, 
we will, we will reap a harvest in our life and in our relationships with others around us. And what will we harvest? A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Three times he's alluded to this issue of peace as it pertains to wisdom, all done in the context of relationships. Lovers of peace operate and relate to others out of their own peace-oriented qualities and thus are people who are more likely to make and or achieve and or keep peace with others around us. Or, if you are constantly living in relational drama with the people around you, then either you and or the persons around you that you don't seem to know how to live peacefully with, one or both is lacking wisdom. Because wisdom knows how to get along with people. It's bent in the heart of a wise person to want to love peace, not drama, but peace. And it's within the heart of that person to then practice certain cultivated virtues that lend themselves toward peacemaking. And the end result of that is peace achievement. True wisdom leads to peace. You can't get along with people. You don't have wisdom. Now, obviously, we both know that it's probably the other person that lacks wisdom. But they're not here to defend themselves this morning. And so let's just pick on ourselves for a moment. Well, we'll just maybe they'll come next Sunday and we could preach to them. But, but, but for now, or listen to what the Apostle Paul, how he would frame it in Romans 12, 18. If possible, and I like the realism there, peace isn't always obtainable this side of eternity. But while peace is not always obtainable this side of eternity, it comes back to, but what do you want? Do you want peace or do you want the other person to know how right you are? Is it more important to win this argument, argument or is it more important that you strive for opportunities to live peaceably? Whew. I don't know when run over after the sermon and ask Diane how Joe's doing with that. All right? This is all theoretical right now. To the extent that Joe does genuinely have this critter called wisdom is to the extent that Joe does have some sort of bent or desire to live in peace and harmony with others around him, whether it be his wife or whoever, fill in the blanks. It's the same way with, with any of us. As if possible, as far as it depends upon you, still quoting Paul in Romans 12, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all.
or Paul would add to that two chapters later in, in a unit dealing with what I would call disputable matters, matters that the scriptures don't bring absolute clarity as to who's right and wrong. Romans 14, 19, he says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Or in Ephesians chapter 4, he says that we should be people that are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And in that context, he's prefaced that by talking about how you and I would act in qualities of humility and gentleness and patience and loving forbearance. Let me work this out into two applications. First of all, what does it look like to be someone who loves peace, who sows peace, peace with the hope that he, that, he, that he makes peace within the body of Christ? We have to be careful in the body of Christ that we don't engage in a lot of meaningless, unproductive, unfruitful conversations that do not achieve mutual upbuilding or our personal growth in holiness and Christ-likeness. Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness Faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies that you know only breed quarrels. Uh, I don't know. This is going to sound kind of horn tooting for a second here, but... but, um, For the last 40 years, I've studied the Bible. It's like a full-time vocation. I'm grateful for that. Now, you would think that after 40 years, I would know a thing or two. I don't know if I do or not. But I do know this, that even after 40 years, there are some issues in the Scripture that I believe are still above my proverbial pay grade in terms of my ability to reach a solid, absolute conclusion upon. There are still issues in the Bible that I think my best answer is, I don't know. And so you know what that means? That you and I shouldn't kick up a fuss and create a firestorm of controversy over those matters in the scripture for which for thousands of years now, the church hasn't been able to really sort this thing out. I'm not being agnostic. There are things that the scripture, that the church has been settled for thousands of years. Stick with those things is my point. What the church has confessed for 2,000 years, confess that. And contend for that faith that's been once for all delivered. But the stuff that we've been arguing about for, uh, for two millennium, that, that you have it figured out now, 
You and your blog post? Really? You don't love peace, do you? You just love to breed controversy, don't you? You're a fool. But then how do we relate this to those outside the church? Hmm. Perhaps in previous generations, it seems to me that the culture in North America has been influenced by biblical morality and biblical worldview. I don't think that's really the case anymore. We're living in a broader culture that in fact has adopted a morality and a worldview that is antithetical to biblical morality and a biblical worldview. We find ourselves at odds with a lot of people in our culture. What kind of people should we be in that context? Well, the tightrope that I think we must walk is that we need to be people whose morality and worldview is faithfully shaped by the Scripture. But a part of our morality and worldview also entails how it, inform, it informs and entails how we will talk to and treat those who do not have a biblical morality and worldview. It shows ourselves to be foolish. It, shows, uh, uh, it proves to be unproductive if we try to advance a biblical morality and worldview using the world's morality and worldview's methods. So Paul writes also to Timothy, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. We could do a full stop right there. Our response to a world that's flipped itself on its head and it's upside down in terms of its morality and worldview, we should not have a heartbeat to be quarrelsome with that culture. But must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth after, after the devil has taken them captive to do his will. We are dealing with a culture that, has been, that is being held captive by our enemy. So much so that while the people who hold the worldviews that are antithetical to Scripture that they hold to, they are morally responsible for that, and yet they don't realize that they have been blinded and shackled by the enemy. And that ought to shape how we will not engage in quarrelsome fights with them, but we will be kind to them. We will be gentle to them. We will give faithful instruction when it's appropriate to them. And then we will let God do what only God can do with such people. Only God can change their hearts. And so we can, as much as it depends upon us, live peaceably with them because we are being kind and gentle. 
And we are waiting for God to do the work that only he can do. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it instructs us on how we should live and how we should relate to each other. Thank you for the wisdom that it gives to us in terms of how to do relationships. We thank you most of all for the very embodiment of Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of wisdom resides. We thank you that you give your people hearts of devotion to Jesus. And we trust that Jesus will give us all the wisdom that we need all the days of our lives. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song together.